Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Big Boss Battle's Big Boss Babble. Uh, we've got a full house this week. We've got Dan. Hello. We've got Leo. Hello. And uh, returning from a short hiatus, we've got Toby. Hello. Hey, so we've got back to four people on the podcast. So this week we're going to be discussing the sort of over the last five or so years, recent influx of retro styled games and what elements from retro games should be kept and what things should have been left in the past. So, I uh, the reason that we're talking about this is that I played uh, a game today, which is coming out soon. I'm not sure if I can mention the name of it. There might be some kind of... Uh, because it's uh, an early access sort of thing. Um, but it has a lives and a credit system, which is... When it's a retro-style platformer that has retro difficulty levels is something that really should have been left in the past. Now, I'm a big fan of retro games, and I, I love old retro games and arcade games and things like that. But for a modern game to come out with those restrictions, I think it, it's something that should have definitely stayed in the past. What are your thoughts, gents? I no think one? That, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got some thoughts. Go on. I think it really depends on what you want to achieve with your retro game, whether you want to make your game look retro. I think there's there can be a couple of reasons for that, that you want to evoke a feeling games had back then, and also that your your budget is maybe limited, which I think is a legitimate reason. I don't mean that as a bad thing. Especially if you have a one-man project or if your team is small and you are a non-full-time developer, not having the finances to have a like a brand new, totally modern-looking game, that's, that's perfectly fine. And also to essentially recreate games as they were back then. And depending on what of those two or three you want to do, I think you should take into account what you want to achieve because... A lot of those games, if we go by the sense of, let's say, Ninja Gaiden, they were a lot of them were arcade adaptations, or based in some in some way or another on arcade games, or their legacy came from an arcade game, and those games were ultimately designed to take your money. Well, yeah, yeah, they were coin which, guzzlers. That was the point. Which is not necessarily a bad thing in the sense that people often like those games. They like the challenge, they like the difficulty, and they also, at the time, had, maybe at the time, just memorized the entire game. And so I think the what you should ask yourself if you make a retro game is what do you want to achieve? Do you want to authentically create a game that has to be played for six hours and after you know the positioning of every enemy, then you can beat it? Do you want that? I think that can be a valid goal, but is that really what you want to achieve with your game? Or maybe do you just want a game that's maybe evokes a spirit but is a bit more accessible? Yeah, I mean, you, you bring up an interesting point there in Ninja Gaiden. And I mean, I've, I've gone back and, and looked at reviews, and even reviews of that game at the time basically stated that game was broken because of how hard it was. Because of the fact that you had the, you know, when you jumped and got hit by an enemy, you got knocked back, and there was really tricky platforming sections where you almost couldn't avoid the enemies. And you, so you always got knocked back and died and things like that. I mean, I've seen people do speedruns of that game now, and, you know, they do it and not lose a single life, and it's ridiculous. But I mean, things have to be pixel perfect 
And I think some of the reasons like, the games were that hard back then is because of certain limitations in the in the system. It wasn't generally that they they purposely made the game ridiculously hard. I mean, some games, like arcade games, like you say, yeah, they had to be hard so people would keep coughing up coin to carry on. But I think some of it did come down to the limitations of the system, which don't exist now. So there's no reason to keep it now. (laughs) Yeah, there were also generally no patches. You could release a sequel, which was kind of the same game except improved. But if I remember correctly, with Ninja Gaiden, they messed up the checkpoints. That's why losing against the final box sent you back to the beginning of the final stage, and which then was kept in, but you couldn't patch it anyway, so that was said and done. Yeah, and I mean you, a lot of games. Yeah, a lot of games you did find there were later revisions that you know if they did a second run of the game they would fix certain things and let them and, and release those. But yeah, like like you say, you couldn't you couldn't patch a game. You had to deal with it. Uh, as it was and I mean that's the thing that I, I think I've been brought it up on the podcast before is that uh, people often you know lament the fact that oh we've got to constantly update our games they come out they're buggy and broken and all that kind of stuff games were seriously broken back then as well but a lot of the time you didn't know how badly they were broken because the internet wasn't there and, and things like that but you watch some speedrunners and they break these games in half <laughs> so they were really broken and you just couldn't fix it but but yeah I do I do get your point Dan, have you got any thoughts? What should be uh, kept and what should uh, go from retro-style games? Uh, um, rather than saying kept, I'm going to say what should be brought back, which is scores and leaderboards and high score charts. They should be in more games because that was just a really cool way to you know, interact and do things. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I think the last, the last game I played that was, that was relatively modern... And had score tables, was the the four games that Puppy Games did. Yeah. Um, Ultratron. I can't remember what they were called, but all, all them had high score tables in them. Attack of the Titans and stuff. Attack there's, of the Titans. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's a there's a lot of games that have got them in them, but it definitely they're definitely not in the larger games. And I I literally do think that FIFA and Forza and Halo and you know. Call of Duty should all have leaderboard. Well, they've got they've got some leaderboards in them, but they should have scores in them. Yeah, you know, proper think... scores rather than just the multiplayer's per level. There should be a rolling big leap, you know, because that kind of stuff builds a nice passive competitive if it's maintained community. We see it in some stuff. We see it in speedrunning. I mean, how celebrated is speedrunning? And that's essentially a form of a score, isn't it? It is a score. It's basically like a almost like a time attack mode that used to be in some games. I suppose, in a way, the only real games that have got leaderboards like that now are racing games. Yeah. Because time's, you know, is is a a sort of an integral part of a racing game, you know, the the time you get on a track. But, yeah, high scores. I mean, you do find that a lot of old retro games that get bought back, like remakes, will often have high score tables and they're online and things like that, which are kind of cool, I think, now. So you can compare yourself all over the world rather than just the people that have played your copy of the game. (laughs) That's true. The, the Contra re-releases, the, the Virtual Console ones, those have online leaderboards. So if you want to compete there, you can compete against the rest of the world. And I mean, leaderboards on the main menu and uh, smaller games within games would also be cool to come back. I know that wasn't done too much back in the... the although you used to have the 
game that used to play out on the main menu? Wasn't that trademarked by Namco? No, no, no. What you're talking about, Namco trademarked the loading game. Yes. Oh, yes. So yes. that was in okay. Ridge Racer. So while Ridge Racer was loading, you could play Gallagher. Yeah. But what? No, I think what you're talking about is the attract mode, which basically came from arcade games. So if you were on the title screen and you didn't touch anything, the game would play itself. I remember Parasite yeah. Eve 2. If you left it on the main menu, it used to play the intro sequence over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but obviously the, the, the attract mode uh, came from obviously arcades because yes. they, they were basically used as a, a marketing thing. You could walk past and go, what that game like? Oh, I'm now watching the game sort of playing itself. That's kind of cool. And actually, you bring up a good point because the game I'm currently playing for review has an attract mode in it, which is something that like, I've not seen for a long, long time. But yeah, you leave it on the, on the title screen and it will just start playing the game automatically and just flash up attract mode on the on the th- title screen, which is kind of cool. I think the attract mode sort of kind of still exists in the form of the online video trailer because that's what people look at when they want to see whether or not they want to buy a game they look at. I'm not saying it's the same, but uh, people people go to the arcade, they check out the track mode and say, hey, that looks cool, I'm going to play that. And now they, they check out the trailer and say, oh, that looks great. I'm not saying it's quite the same, but I think they're still, like the concept has soft kind of survived. Yeah, see, I'd, I would disagree purely because the amount of trailers that don't actually include any game footage. And that's a fair point. Most of them are, you know, what they what they title bullshots, where you know it's just pre-rendered footage and the game looks in no way like it. Even where they, even the trailers that show off what looks like the game, and then it's yeah, that's not the game when you get it. <laughs> it's the E3 trailer. Yeah, uh, basically. Yeah. Actually, I okay. So actually, I, I retract my statement. <laughs> trailers are the new the new uh, shots on the back of the box. Do you know when? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. When you bought when you bought a game in the nineties. Like there were six shots, four of them were cutscenes, which gave you the illusion that it was the actual gameplay. Then one of them was an epic boss fight, and then the last one was an actual screenshot. Yeah, that looked kind of boring compared to the other five. That's the trailer. <laughs> or or uh, magazine screenshots that were usually taken from a really early prototype build of the game, and then the final game turns out to look completely different. <laughs> Yeah, that's a fair point as well. Which happened a lot of well, like Super Mario World looked completely different. Some of the Sonic Two, for example, had a lot of different levels that weren't even in the final game when people yeah. reviewed it and yeah, just crazy stuff. That's something that I'm luckily luckily well that's not even been left in the past, has it? That still happens now. Wasn't that a big thing for um Watchdogs? Yeah, Watchdogs was a bit of an yeah. odd odd thing because it, it did the final game looked worse. But interestingly, you could actually, at least in the PC version, you could alter some game files and unlock additional graphics options. It still yeah, wouldn't it look like... quite like the E3 game, but they just didn't allow you to have the game look as good as it could, which was kind of a weird choice. Wasn't it downgraded so it was like comparable with the console versions, I believe? I think that might have been it. I think yes, that, it was. Was the, yeah, that was the excuse yeah. that they used, that they didn't want the console peasant. <laughs> Stefan's not here, he can't moan at me. <laughs> so, the, yeah, the console players uh, didn't whinge too much, so they thought they were getting an equivalent game. It's a terrible, terrible thing to do. But anyway, how about you, Toby? Have you got any uh, input on what should 
either be kept from the past. I know the past for you is a lot later than the past <laughs> for the rest of us. My retro but, games are on the DS. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you want two screens brought back. <laughs> yes. Well, I've got my 3DS sitting right here. Excellent. I mean, is there anything I'm, that, you, you know, like, so you, if you've played any modern games that are retro-styled, anything that you think is kind of out of place in the modern day? Oh, uh, no, most of the retro games I play are fairly popular ones, like... Oh, I don't even know what counts anymore, like, uh, Shovel Knight? That's retro, Sho- right? Shovel Knight is definitely retro, yes, that's a NES-styled yeah. game. That's very, a good one, I like very, that. A very good one, yeah. The best bit, the best bit about Shovel Knight that I that I really like, and I wish more games um, used it or did it. Some games have, have tried to do it, but they didn't do it anywhere near as good. Because I know the developer of um, Shovel Knight built the the system from scratch, and that was the CRT emulation. Ooh. So not not only did it do scan lines, it did you know it it did um phosphor glow and the barreling of the screen so it was slightly distorted and, and things like that yeah. and it looked absolutely gorgeous and he got it perfect yeah I know, I know i know some games have have done it since and some games have in put parts of it in like sonic mania had scan lines but it didn't have the distortion and and things like that. Some games have done bits of it, but I think Shovel Knight had the entire package and he actually went on and released it as its own app which was kind of cool. So you could run the app and it gave you a little desktop uh, sort of window and you just placed that over whatever you wanted to be CRT emulated and then it would do all the filtering on that little particular part of the screen. Which I have a game cool. that did it two years before Shovel Knight. Go on. Retro City Rampage also had that and there was like a thing where you could have like I think 50 different monitors like the uh, green and black or all the different old consoles as well. Mm. See, now, I know Retro City Rampage has it, but I'm pretty sure it was added later. Oh, well then I'm wrong. And I, I don't think it was in the original release. Uh-huh. But I could be wrong. Because I think he put that in for the console release, which was quite a way after the PC release. Uh, maybe. But I might be wrong. I'll put my hands up if I am wrong. I'm not going to type and find out because my keyboard's uh, noisy. <laughs> I know that Mega Man 9 does not have... I don't think it has any monitor mode, but what it does have is a mode, if I remember correctly, that simulates bright flickering and slowdown. Yeah, because I think that was just built into the, the engine, I think. I don't think it's a yeah, filter. So I think it was just part of the game, the, yeah. Which is kind of nice, because I, I, do rec- I do recall there are a couple of games that I played when I was younger where the slowdown was kind of a feature because it was like bullet time. Because yeah, the I, game being slower made it a little bit easier to aim or whatever you were doing in the game. And if you knew when the game would slow down, you could actually exploit that. So that's actually... You, I think you could turn that into a feature. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. It can make the game terrible. Because I know there were some, some DOS games where the game just slows slows and speeds up, so that's not so great. Especially not if you do critical like pixel-perfect jumps and stuff. But I think you could turn that into a feature. I'm not quite sure whether there's any game that actually makes that or... A real thing. Mega Man Nan has it, but where it's almost intentional as a gameplay feature. Yeah, almost reminds me of uh, when I was younger, uh, turning off the turbo button on my PC to make games run slower. <laughs> oh, <laughs> if, yeah, if, if any of you are old enough to remember a PC with a turbo button on it, 
I I don't, but then I do remember benefiting from having the game slow down because too much was going on on screen and it giving me a little bit of extra time that I could, you know, time shots and I could I could and do such while the game was struggling to display. I'll tell you what, Attack Tax has got an idea there though that you could turn that into a feature. What more enemies so, uh, on screen the slower the game moves. Yeah, so you have to go around and almost collect enemies and, you know, attract them towards you to a certain point where there's enough enemies on the screen that slows down to enable you to do something. That's, that's, that's kind of a cool idea. Maybe the uh, uh, combo multiplayer is actually time-based, but the amount of enemies on screen slows down the game. So, or you, or you get more points when there are less enemies on screen, but the game is moving faster. But then when you collect them, you can clear the screen and you only get one go. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting idea. One thing that that I'm not... I'm a bit mixed on as to whether it should return or not is cheat codes, which is topical because I know that Lou's writing a piece that's due to go out this Saturday uh, on cheat codes. But cheat codes and the password entry screens? Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of mixed on that. Yeah. So, I mean, I can kind of, I, for passwords, I can kind of see why they're not used anymore. Is the fact that we can save our game now, and that was basically what it was for. Yeah, it was a kind of save game feature, which is now no longer needed. But then, if you view it as uh, something they could still put in games, and the passwords could be shared on the internet, it's almost like a cheat, wherein you skip to the last level because you know the password yeah. for the last level. Yeah, I think I think that's another reason why they're not around anymore. Mm. Is that Back in the day, it would take a lot longer for things to permeate yeah. and get around. Now it'll be, oh, I've got I've, day one, I found all the codes, here they are, everyone's gone. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, and it would almost be a pointless day, feature now, yeah. Back in the day, you would copy the password from your friend, but then turns out what you thought was a lowercase l was actually one, or maybe a capital I. Yeah, yeah. And stuff like that. But I think. I think there's a compromise for that. That is that some games have a feature where instead of getting a password, the level is unlocked and you can select the level again from the menu. So you can't just save every, everywhere, but you can select the level and use that kind of like a password. So you at least don't have to write down an actual password. Yeah, you don't really get level select screens that often anymore, do you? Uh, it depends. It, they're quite common in, in strategy games. Yeah, fair. But that's because the approach is a little bit different. You, if you have a the classic mission-based campaign, then you have a very strictly segmented experience in a way you won't really have it in an open-world game naturally, where yeah. the entire point is that it's not segmented. So it is still it is around, but there are some genres where it wouldn't really fit all that well. No, I suppose in a way roguelikes often have a feature like that where you'll get a certain way through the game and then you can choose to start at that point the next time you play through it. Yeah, the rogue lights uh, where you progress through the game as well and you can shortcut little bits. So they, they, I think rogue lights are carrying a lot of the older game legacy at the moment because diff- the difficulty is a feature, uh, whereas we complain that games are too hard or complain that games are too easy because back then we only had a handful of games and so we just kept sticking with them until we got good at it 
Yeah. And so... No, I agree with that. And so now that difficulty is a feature in roguelites, we can kind of forgive them for being for when they're hard, and we can laugh at them when they're easy. Uh, but with other games, especially games that don't advertise that that's part of the feature and to make it look like it's mechanics or something, then it it... it it's more testing or more trying. I, I want to talk about cheats. I want to talk about cheat codes. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why cheat codes have become rarer is because, if I remember correctly, they used to be a debugging tool. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to try, oh, does this feature work? Let's just let's just turn on the climb cheat and I'll go to the end of the map so I can actually try whether or not this works. And I don't think that's really needed anymore from a developing standpoint. I'm not quite sure whether that's actually true, or at least you can use other tools, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, what you say there, a development thing, I think that that generally is the case. It's it's more, of, it's more so, it's, you know, if you're developing a game now, most IDEs, you'll, you know, you'll be creating different levels. You can just literally click a button, it runs that level, so you don't have to jump around. But in the old days where they were having to really test it on real hardware, you know, straight away... It was much easier for them to just go da 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 da. There you go. I'm on level ten or or whatever, and just jump to wherever it was. But don't you miss some of the silly cheats that they put in as well, like big head mode and massive hand mode? Yeah, I was mode about to say that watermelon heads. Yeah, yes. exactly. And and uh, those, those were pretty fun. The paintball paintball mode yeah. and stuff. Yeah. See, stuff like that, I think, does need to be around more. So you know, almost like Unreal's. I mean, Unreal kind of changed it where they had the mutators, mutators which was kind of yeah. it was kind of cheat codes, but they were kind of just there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, was it, um, like Rocket League does it as well now. Rocket League has got a bunch of wacky, crazy modes that would have been previously, like you say, a, a cheat code um, for for an odd mode. But I also think another reason is the fact that people monetize things now. So we we talked about this before, like unlocks in a game. Whereas before, you'd pay the game a certain amount and you'd unlock this, and then a bit more, you'd unlock this, and a bit more, you'd unlock this. But nowadays, they just go, no, you want that, you buy it. And some games, you know, that you've got the option, but there's always that either play it or buy it. But the play it option, they've made it ridiculously grindy to actually get anything. So you oftentimes just want to buy it to save time. And I've yeah, seen think- that for... for for cheat codes, there's actually been DLC to add in wacky modes and things like that, which is poo. I think part of the reason is also that a lot of games have um, a focus on online gameplay. Not not every game, but more games than, let's say, in the 8-bit era. And that might lead to issues with the multiplayer mode. Of course, you don't have to have the cheats work in multiplayer mode, but I think it makes maybe makes it easier to hack. Doesn't necessarily mean that that's a like legitimate reason not to have the cheat codes or just allow the players to play around. But I can kind of see that being brought forward as a reason not to have cheat codes. I I agree. Yeah, I think if the facility's there for single player, then it's probably quite easy for someone to already, take an already existing lump of code and apply it to the multiplayer segment. And I mean, hackers already, you know. If someone wants to hack a game, they'll. It can be done. Put simply, you know, uh, all of the consoles have got memory card and USB hacks available, and obviously PC. You can still run trainers and stuff in the background, even through Steam, and it won't pick up on them. Although I've never actually tried that because I'm pretty scared of getting 
the, the, Va- the vac band exactly so i'm yeah. pretty pretty terrified of that so that's doing the job that's stopping me from tinkering <laughs> with it so yeah and, and let's let's be honest if you if you win a multiplayer match because you cheated uh do you really like feel good after that there's that too as well yeah, yeah. Well, that's the, that's what that's the main reason that I stopped playing GTA Online is because there's it's just full of hackers and yeah. there's just really no point playing anymore. That's the best bit, though. <laughs> oh, see, you're you're young and you don't get it. So <laughs> you're old, you don't get it. No, I mean it, it. It depends what you've got. So sometimes you go into a multiplayer game on GTA, and there's a guy literally throwing money around all over the place, and you're like, "Yay, I'm getting lots of money! This is awesome!" And then you go into another match, and then there's five people with homing missile launchers, and they camp on spawn points and just kill you instantly. And you're like, "Well, I literally can't do anything. What's the point? I'm going to log off." So yeah, or, or people that like they'll spawn cars, but they'll just like spawn a hundred cars in the sky and they all crash down and explode, and it's just like what's the what's the point? You've met some really bad hackers. Yes, I have. <laughs> but to get back to the cheats, or at least yeah. the the fun cheats, like the bloated heads and changing your your characters' colors and turning all the NPCs into I don't know goat or so, uh, it. Again, that has sort of kind of survived in the form of mods. It's not quite the same, but I would say that the modding scene in general is thriving more than it used to because it's now a lot easier to exchange mods than it used to be. Oh, yeah, definitely. So and obviously the, the the fact that a lot of companies now are fully supporting modding. Yes, you've you got know, Steam. They're, they're putting Steam official tools out. Stuff. Yeah, Steam mod support, you know, the Steam Workshop. Yeah. And co- companies actually going, look, Here's the tools, make what you want. Whereas back in the day, it was all like reverse engineering the code and making their own tools and a very homebrew sort of community back then. But now it's available to everyone. Yeah, it's not quite the same, but um, there are certain games, especially Bethesda games, if you want to have everyone like be, be a rubber duck, someone probably has done that already. Yeah. Actually, one thing I want to bring up here, which which covers retro games and, and, and things like that and mods, and the different attitudes that people have towards it. So if Nintendo, or like someone, you know, Nintendo, they do, on a modded Wii, you could do a thing with virtual console games called ROM injection. So you could take a, a virtual console game that you've bought, and that virtual console game includes the emulator for that game. But people figured out how to rip that out and put another game in there, so you could then play pretty much every game on the on the Wii without even using a third-party emulator. They could do that. And obviously mm-hmm. you had to have a modded Wii and work on a crazy stuff and Nintendo were trying to shut people down left, right and centre. But then you compare that to the Sega Mega Drive Classics collection on Steam. Oh, they've <laughs> tightened that up a lot now, though. Have they? Yeah, which is a shame oh, because a shame. I had Psycho Fox... Yeah, I think so. If if you're not if you're not aware, so they actually added Steam Workshop support to the Sega Mega Drive uh, Classics Collection, so people could put their Sonic ROM hacks and stuff onto Steam. But people figured out how to literally, like the Wii, rip the entire game out and replace it with another game that wasn't available on the Genesis (laughs) Connection. And put those up as just mods. So when if you've got Alex Kid, you can download this mod and it becomes Outward Beast, for example. <laughs> so, and for for a long time, 
Sega did not care. They were just like, yeah, whatever. I, I, we don't we don't make money off this girl of this anymore. But then it, it, they did seem to. Yeah, they, they tightened it up, and I think it was probably because somebody hacked in a game that had a license that somebody was still watching, or somebody hacked ah, in a game yep. that you That'd could also buy on another cartridge into it. So people were essentially not having to pay one pound twenty or whatever for another game and so I think that was what crossed the line I think they probably could have gotten away with it had it been trodden a bit more carefully it wouldn't surprise me if it was someone who put up Pier Solar possibly because the people who people who made that game are very protective over it it could be that yeah I got the feeling that some of these like retro console or retro releases are almost supposed to be hacked for example the SNES Classic has 250 megabytes of storage but the games only use up like ten, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, almost like they want you to put like one quarter of the SNES library on that. Apparently, it's also really easy to actually do that. It doesn't really require super techy knowledge or anything. You, almost anyone can do it. Yeah, you just you can just plug in a, a USB pen drive and it pretty much does it for you. It's it's really it's really easy. But I mean, the, you say that it was it was purposely made. No, I'm not, not saying not, that, but not coming from Nintendo. <laughs> no, no, no. It, I'm, just, I'm not. The door is open almost. The way that they've yes. given left far too much storage space there. It's, it's, yeah, it's, probably, it's probably because nobody produces storage that small anymore. Yeah, so they couldn't get storage smaller than 250 megabyte. It's very true, but I mean, there's nothing. There's no, there's no reason that they could have just filled it with garbage data that couldn't be. I mean, wh- why did they even make it writable? They could have had a separate tiny chip for save games and had the main ROM not or the main memory not writable. That's true. And, and they would have done it, but yeah, it's certainly a weird, a weird one, but kind of cool. But one thing I do want to bring up before we go back is that is that um, with the with the what should be left in the past, and that is just straight up the difficulty of a game there's no reason for a game to be just punishingly hard without an option to make it easier Mm, I think there's two reasons why that's the case for some games I think a lot of those old school platformers like Ninja, I think you can complete Ninja Gaiden in about half an hour if you know what you're doing yeah so if the game was very too easy almost you'd get half an hour out of it and that's kind of it and there's limited replay value. So one solution to that is, of course, to make the game so difficult that you have to play it multiple times. And I think another uh, reason is that I think there are certain genres where difficulty is hard and easier to do. If it's a first-person shooter, you can just say, oh, you deal triple damage and all enemies have half their health. That's the easy mode. That's really easy. And But on platformers, you might have to maybe reduce the number of enemies have there be more power-ups so it's a, it's a little more work and depending on how your game is designed especially if it's a puzzle game or has some puzzles it might be really difficult to implement another difficulty mode that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be one but I think it's it's different for different genres and some people also fetishize high difficulty a little bit yeah. even though you can always play it on the highest difficulty it's not like the, if there's someone next to you who, who beat the game on you can't lose mode that doesn't really take away from your experience or if it does then you should probably like think about what you're getting out of the game for yourself 
Very yeah. true. Well, actually, actually, that's that's something that um, I don't think is in games these these days. Is so in a lot of old games, you'd have you know you'd have different difficulty settings, but you wouldn't be able to complete the game properly oh, yeah. on an easier difficulty setting. Yeah. You'd go through the entire game, get to the end, and say. Well, you'd get to, let's say, halfway through the game, and it would go, that's brilliant, well done. Now to, to actually carry on playing, play harder. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. My, my, my favorite <laughs> example of that is Golden Axe, where the final board boss is a death adder. Except if you play on easy mode, then you can, I think you lose the last third of the game, and, and the boss you fight is death adder junior. <laughs> I don't know if they're death adder son, but I thought that's that was a pretty sweet move. So in, uh, it's not quite mocking, but oh. it's it's pretty neat. So in uh, Home Alone on the Mega Drive, uh, which was one of the best movie tying games ever made, I think I <laughs> forgot to mention that the other week actually. But uh, the easy mode, you had less houses to protect, but it meant as well as that they took out certain ingredients. Uh, they took the training wheels off on the weapon assembly, so it didn't recommend you weapons to make instead. But there were a lot more combinations, uh, and so you lost out on all of that if you played on the easier mode, but you wouldn't have known. And M- Mickey Mouse, Castle of Illusion, had... Yeah, they had the practice had mode, the practice didn't it? Mode where it you, only you had you three only levels. Did, that's it. And Toad Jam, to my health. Toad Jam and Earl 2 had a kid mode that finished before you started collecting the, like, eight or nine hidden things for... Uh, for whoever you were collecting those things for. So yeah, I mean that that's definitely something, but I think another thing to consider when it does come to difficulty, as I said earlier, the amount of time that we had when we were younger with these games, we just played them till we got good at them, and there is a degree of that in games that are modern still. I've been recently replaying through Left 4 Dead with uh with Sarah and we played through No Mercy, which is something that we used to be able to breeze through we used to be able to do all of these on expert if we had like two other humans with us who are half decent at first person shooters but we've been playing through on normal uh, we're playing through on left 4 dead 2 so they've made some stupid alterations to the map and added in some of the rubbish from left 4 dead 2 but but we got to the end of no mercy and we couldn't do it so normally we'd put it down and be like right stuff it we'll try something else but instead we tried uh more recently the second campaign and then the third campaign and we just got through them and we got better and we got back into it because we now play so many different types of games that you have problems wherein the buttons are slightly different from the game you're normally playing and reload has moved and it's just things like refamiliarizing yourself with the game and the mechanics and that is often seen as difficulty but it's not it's just it's just breaking yourself in in my opinion yeah very true very true. Well, I think with that, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So uh, thank you to Dan, Toby and Leo for joining me. And from all of us, uh, we will see you next time. Bye for now. Bye.